Hello, and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Kristen Hayes. My guest today is Michael Pala, head of the Climate and Energy Policy Working Group at the Potsdam Institute for Climate Impact Research, known as PIC, based in Potsdam, Germany. Among his many responsibilities, Michael is the principal investigator on European climate and energy policy for a project known as the Ariadne Project, which is funded by the German Ministry of Science and is Germany's largest social science energy venda research project. Sorry, what type of research project, you say? What was that German word that you pronounced so poorly? Well, that word is, I'm going to try it again, Energiewende, <laughs> and we'll get there, uh, but it essentially means energy transition. And in the marvelous fashion of the German language, and I mean this, this is seriously one of my favorite things about German, they have created a single word to encapsulate the important multifaceted concept of weaning the German economy off fossil fuels and transitioning to low carbon energy. So stay with us as we discuss the goals and progress of Germany's Energiewende. Again, with my sincere apologies for my pronunciation, I have a whole episode over which to improve. Hi, Michael. Thanks very much for stopping by Resources Radio during your visit to the U.S. this month. Hi, Kristen. Thanks for having me. Sure. So for our opening Get to Know You segment, which we always love to include, I would like to ask you two things. So as an economist, what drew you to work on climate policy? And second, how do you really pronounce the word Energiewende? <laughs> so regarding your first question, which is uh, the more difficult to answer, it was actually the other way around. Uh, in university, my graduate degree was in physics. Um, I was very much inspired by the natural science. And then at the very last year, Ottmar Edenhofer, who is now the director of PIC, he gave a talk on um, the use of um, economics for policy advice, especially for societal transformation and for the climate problem. And I was so inspired um, that I decided to move on from physics to economics. I joined PIC in 2003 and I've stayed on since then and it only became more fascinating. Mm, so fantastic. That's, that's, that's my story, how I got into climate economics. And regarding Energiewende, it's pronounced Energiewende. So it's quite simple for a German word. It just has a couple of letters, actually. It can be much more difficult. And um, just to add, it's the literal uh, translation is uh, turnaround. So it's not transitioning from one point to the other, but it's like a U-turn doing a U-turn, implying that something had been wrong in the initial decisions on how things evolved. So that's quite an important aspect. And I think we can come back to this for the course of the podcast. Yeah. No, that is... Very interesting context, not just keep going from the point where you have started, but actually stop, uh, recalibrate and go back the other direction. So so let's talk about Germany's energy transition. I'm not going to use the word too many more times because I don't want to embarrass myself. But, um, but I will note, as you've indicated, Germany really set about transforming its economy, decarbonizing its economy with significant intention, right? This wasn't just something where they were where the government was interested in letting it play out. There was a lot of kind of strategy behind it. And so, but before we talk about that journey, um, the about face, I'd like to benchmark for our listeners the beginning point and the end point. Uh, so maybe you can say a little bit about when Germany began this process and what is the end state that the country is trying to achieve, either in terms of emissions goals, uh, energy mix, any other benchmarks and timeframes that they're looking at? 
Yeah, so in fact, the starting point is is hard to pin down because the the idea of the energy transitional energy when they built over many years, if not decades. So it, historically, it goes back to the 1970s to the oil crisis and the decision to build nuclear power plants in Germany. And then um, over the time, there was a considerable debate about the use of nuclear power and all the issues related to the peace movements. And it really got a deep it was deeply embedded in uh, the German political discourse and in parts of the society. And that built over a long time, and it was eventually reinf reinforced with a Chernobyl incident in the 1980s, which was the sort of founding moment for the Green Party. And the main objective of this party had always been to phase out nuclear power because it was perceived as such a threat to society. And it took another 15 years or so before this party came into power at the end of the 1990s. And then the important decision was made to phase out nuclear power in 2002 and within the next 20 years or so. And that was really the first clearly clear milestone that initiated the energy vendor or that made it practical, uh, that moved it beyond the discussion to real policy making. Um, and so it all started back then, and um, that was a major decision, but it, the compromise, the political compromise behind it was sort of brittle, so it was always questioned in the subsequent years. And then when a new government came into power in 2010, if I remember correctly, uh, which was more conservative, it decided to revoke or to postpone, at least postpone the phase-out. And then uh, basically um, coincidental with this decision, um, Fukushima happened. And that produced another U-turn, <laughs> so a turnaround from the I turnaround, know, yeah. uh, so to speak. And then um, it was decided to phase out nuclear power for good. So this is really what set it all in motion. And the important part is that it was not just a decision to phase out, it was a parallel decision to phase in. Because when taking the decision to phase out nuclear power originally, it was clear that some uh, technological alternatives would be needed. And these were renewable energies. So there were, were there were first steps to bring them into the market that started in 2002 already. But after the final phase-out decision in 2011, this really got serious and was scaled up considerably. So just to clarify then, it sounds like the original impetus here really didn't have to do with climate change at all. It wasn't about emissions. It wasn't about low carbon. It was about an energy transition that would take the country out of one particularly... Uh, problematic fuel for the for the decision makers there. So when did the climate lens sort of get layered on top of it, if that's a fair way to to ask that question? No, that's a very good question to ask. I mean, there are, of course, um, especially expert circles were aware of the climate problem very early on, already in the 90s. But this never became a big societal thing. So it took until, I would say, the mid of the 2000s. Um, and a very important year was 2007 with the Stern Review, which got a lot of recognition and um, the IPCC report at the time, so the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, and that uh, make a big impact uh, and increased uh, environmental uh, or awareness for environmental problems and climate problems considerably. And then over time, it gradually turned, I mean, what the substance matter behind the energy vendors and notion gradually turned from getting rid of nuclear to, to decarbonization and eventually deep decarbonization. And the energy vendor is now, so to speak, the backbone of German climate policy. Mm -hmm. Really interesting. Well, in broad terms, is Germany on track? Has that U-turn happened? Is that pathway between the 1970s and some distant goal around decarbonization happening? 
I think for the first part of the vision or the aim of the energy vendor, so substantially increasing the share of renewables, we are on quite good track, I would say. Germany set itself a target of 80% um, power supply coming from renewables by 2030. And in 2022, we were at 46%, up from 17% in 2010. So it's quite a remarkable increase. We, go, we ha do have to go the same amount of uh, the same increase again in the next eight years. So it will definitely be challenging because also a lot of the low-hanging fruits have been picked already. But um, the new government puts a lot of effort and political energy into this endeavor. And I'm moderately confident that we will achieve this target. When it comes to climate policy and the decarbonization targets, I'm not so confident, I have to say. Just today, um, the um, Committee of Experts on Climate Change, which is an official committee mandated by the government to monitor progress uh, in achieving these targets, found that we are not on track for the 2030 target, which is to reduce emissions by 55% compared to 1990, which is quite ambitious, one has to say. Um, but this is not this is not uh, going in the right direction, and the problem is not energy. Of course, I mean, as one could assume, uh, knowing that we are on good track for deploying in renewables large scale, but all the other sectors, basically, which are the tedious and hard to abate sectors. So the power sector, it sounds like, is there a similar desire to sort of decarbonize the electricity sector and then electrify a number of other sectors, uh, as there often is discussed here in the U.S.? Is that kind of the the notional underpinning for progress overall. And it sounds like there's been progress on the power side. Lots of renewables have come in, but that hasn't yet filtered out into the other sectors. Is that a fair yeah, characterization? E exactly. That, yeah, exactly. The essence is, is, is the idea. So to in increase the share of clean power and then to electrify the other sectors. But it's, I mean, on paper, it looks quite straightforward, but it's extremely difficult uh, because it needs to be complemented by other measures, let's say, um, energy renovation measures in the residential sector and, I mean, lots of measures that bring the old stuff out of the market. And this is where it's getting complicated. And in the long run, it might play out. But in the in the midterm, it's really hard to make progress with just looking at the energy, clean energy supply side. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about measures. Let's talk about the drivers of the energy transition. Um, and I, I guess I'm thinking particularly how at RFF, uh, we sometimes talk about policies in particular in terms of carrots and sticks. I will very coarsely define carrot policies, in quotes, carrot policies, as those that incentivize a desired behavior. So, for example, using subsidies or tax credits to lower the cost of renewable energy and therefore bring more renewable energy into the energy mix. Um, stick policies, in quotes again, on the other hand, are those that actually disincentivize an undesired behavior. So putting a price on carbon, making carbon more emissions more expensive. So I wanted to ask, what is Germany's mix of carrot and stick policies these days? I think to some extent we are at the branching point. I mean, in the last years we have mostly used carrots mm -hmm. <laughs> and not so much sticks, um, which is, I think, um, typical for the first phase of ambitious climate policies. And I'm, I'm making this remark with a view on the Inflation Reduction Act, which also has substantial uh, uh, carrots in it and little, little sticks, as I understand. And so this is the way um, the climate policy, German climate policy evolved and is in the state and it's basically in today. And what has made things easy is a certain or is a very high willingness of the German taxpayers to pay for it, mm -hmm. to pay for such measures. Uh, we have created a fund climate transformation fund 
um, that was newly set up um, when the new government took power and it's endowed with around 180 billion euros mm -hmm. for just three years and so that's a remarkable amount and I think mm -hmm. that compares quite um, it's if I have the numbers correctly, it's about 50% of the spendings or in the investments that come with the IRA. Mm -hmm. So that's that's quite remarkable. Um, at the same time, I do see the lack of sticks uh, as a problem and also the way that this money is spent, uh, the, mo the money is spent with the carrots. Um, we did some analysis for the German residential sector and looked at the energy efficiency measures in more detail and actually most of the money from this fund goes into energy efficiency measures. Mm -hmm. And uh, we concluded that most of it is spent in what we would say good faith. So there is um, the idea that all sorts of energy efficiency measures are eventually serve the purpose, which might be quite right, but not of, all of them are cost effective. And there is little interest in doing evaluations. And so I see a big risk that a lot of the money we have, and uh, I mean, it, it is a lot, but it will not be endless for sure. Mm -hmm. So that a lot of this money is spent not in a cost effective way and then will, will be wasted to some extent, and this is really um, one of the major concerns I have with climate policy in Germany at the moment. I feel like I could ask you lots of questions about that. And certainly having worked with economists for long enough now, I understand that that emphasis on cost effectiveness is not just an end in and of itself, but it really is designed to encourage you know, future adoption of similar investments, right? So if, if that first round of money doesn't actually lead to emissions reductions or significant emissions reductions, people are in fact less likely to continue funding something like that. So the cost effectiveness is actually critical for uh, the longevity of the investment of the policy as well. And that's something that I think is has really stuck with me about why cost effectiveness mm -hmm. is a really critical, critical measure to think about. Um, you mentioned that there aren't many sticks. It's been mostly carrots in this first phase. And yet Germany does take part in the European Union's emissions trading system. Is that correct? So that's a price on carbon. I guess I would characterize that as a stick. How does that play into, how does that overlay on top of the other policies that Germany has put into place? It's a very complex interaction, uh, I have to say, because this um, Europe's cap and trade system was set up in 2005 already, originally to fulfill the obligation of Kyoto. Mm -hmm. And at that point, it was a very marginal policy. So it was put on top, so to speak, on the European level, and it created some some carbon price that did not have a big influence back then. And it went up uh, in the first years from initially, let's say, something like 5 euro per ton to 30 euro per ton, but then later on plummeted mm -hmm. and stayed at a very low level. And this is for a variety of reasons, um, but first of all, because European climate policy was not ambitious enough. So it, it lingered and was dormant for quite a long time. Mm -hmm. And then people, especially uh, politicians who were very keen on advancing climate policy, sort of lost faith in it, saying, okay, we put a lot of effort into creating it, and now it's not going to help us. Mm -hmm. So it was a bad investment, so to speak. Mm -hmm. um, and then that changed. Uh, luckily, that changed because um, Europe caught up in terms of ambition. So there's usually some sort of iterative process between the state level and the federal level, speaking of Europe as the federal level and the state level being the nation states in Europe. Mm -hmm. And um, um, there was much more progress and much more ambition on um, several of, in, of several of Europe's member states. Uh, and so the uh, the cap and trade sort of could not catch up or was too unambitious to really make a difference. But then Europe caught up. And it's quite interesting to see because there's a sort of love-hate relationship, I would say, mm -hmm. to the ETS. So um, it's 
um, it's hated because it puts pressure on national policy making. So um, there might be, f f let's say, for, for instance, um, you want to decarbonize the industry sector, but you want to do this at your own pace, taking more time. And then uh, and basically within the course of two years, you have a substantially rising carbon price, which puts considerable pressure to decarbonize the industry sector. So which would be just too quick for you because you need to catch up with complementary policies. At the same time, and this is a really a important lesson we learned from the coal phase out. If you want to negotiate a transformation or a phase of the certain technology as a policymaker, when you have bound yourself to a long-term target, you have a very bad negotiating position. Mm -hmm. So because the industry knows, okay, they, they need to achieve their targets, they're going to pay me everything that we ask for. Mm -hmm. And if you have a stick at hand, you can negotiate much better. And so this is where the laugh comes in, I would say. And I think German policymakers recently have learned to love the ETS more <laughs> than they did in the past. Hmm. Interesting. How much staying power would you say that both these carrot, well, primarily the carrot type policies have across changing governments in Germany? Has there been pretty consistent uh, support for the package of changes that we're talking about, no matter which kind of party or political persuasion is in power? Is this fairly um, fixed? Uh, it's not easy to judge the durability of this um, intention to spend heavily. I mean, the fund that I mentioned was created for three years, which is um, um, the time frame of the current government. So they, I think they did this with good intention. And it certainly helped that the Green Party is part of the uh, government coalition. So I um, think when the next government comes up and the Green Party will not be part of this coalition, this might change. Mm -hmm. And this only emphasizes the need to be aware and to look at cost effectiveness because there's this feedback effect that you mentioned. If you spend heavily in the first round and then you realize it was not spent well, then people might become more reluctant to again uh, um, mobilize substantial public funds. And I think in the past, um, the German population and society was willing to turn a bit of a blind eye and then saying, okay, we just need to get the process started. And maybe in the first phase, you can be a bit more, um, well, uh, look more at efficiency rather than cost effectiveness. But as things progress and become more ambitious and much more costly, I think uh, cost effectiveness is really of the essence. Mm -hmm. Also to sustain this heavy spending through the different um, um, governments. Interesting. Um, well, I want to pivot just a little bit, and certainly the conversation here in the United States about energy transition involves thinking about workers. It involves thinking about shifts in jobs, workers across industries that are emerging, and those that might be phasing out. So I feel like I have a notion that Germany has actually been investing heavily in that piece of the puzzle as well, thinking a lot about the the worker and employment transition piece of this. Is that a fair assessment? What would you say about how Germany has been approaching that piece of the energy transition? It has always been an integral part of the discussion. I think this is the case in, in basically every jurisdiction because it's very hard to do a policy but that where jobs are displaced. And especially in Germany, which has such a strong industrial base, so there's always a keen eye on not endangering this industrial base and the jobs related to it because this is what they would call or what some people would call good work. Um, it's paid well and uh, it's, I mean, yeah, it's it's a highly qualified job. So you would not want to lose this. And in the first stage, it was relatively easy because it was about the creation of the renewable energy industry and this was all about job creation. So there are just good stories to tell. Um, I mean, some job strategies worked out better than others, um, depending on the technology, but that was all positive news. 
so to speak. But now when you have to tackle getting um, the dirty technologies out of the market, like for instance, we did uh, with coal, phasing it out. Um, so it's clear uh, that jobs will be displaced or lost. And the German way of handling this is again, very um, resource intensive, <laughs> I would say. A lot of money was used uh, to compensate and to pay out structural aid. Um, to provide additional qualifications for workers. And there was a, a substantial support, which uh, in principle is a good thing to do, of course, because it helps, um, it, it cushions um, the job effects of phasing out the technology. But then a lot of the, most of the money that went into, the, into funding and financing the coal phase out went, went into these structural aid measures. And there are a lot of jokes saying, um, this is, I don't want to use the C word here, um, but there's a lot of planning, uh, a lot of money spent on two things that are really not, um, I mean, do not pay out in the long run. And so this is Germany's way of handling that. And I'm, I'm worried that um, extrapolating this to other industries, this can become a real problem. It will not work out when you do the same thing for the, let's say, the steel industry or the car maker industry. There are so many jobs there and they are also at risk when there's a large-scale move to electromobility, because this is not where we are good at. Um, we do have other um, competitive advantages in Germany, and we cannot afford the same strategy again if it's uh, at such large scale. Mm. Yeah. Um, well, that's a very important part of the conversation here and how to sort of um, navigate the the timescales on which those switches are happening. I, I have to say, too, I think of Germany as a country that is considerably better than the U.S. at least in investing in vocational training, in, in training in general, in different types of education, and has a, a kind of a broader base of technical colleges, you know, places that are kind of well set up to provide new skills, retrain, things like that. Has that been an asset in this process as well for Germany? Is there is the educational infrastructure particularly well uh, designed to help with some of these worker transitions? I think the way in which vocational training is organized certainly helps. And there's a lot of infrastructure that can support this, not just vocational training per se, but um, I mean, the way in which jobs can be relocated or new jobs can be found. There's a lot of um, yeah government infrastructure that supports this. So I think that played to Germany's advantage. But at the same time, um, and I think I'm a bit cautious to say this, um, but I think it's part a piece of the puzzle that um, in, a, in Germany, the expectations of what government should do for you are relatively high. Mm -hmm. So, um, I mean, you have get used to all these um, training offers and the transfer system and so on. If, if there would just have been a simple message, okay, your job is gone. So then this would have meant a major conflict. Mm -hmm. Also, because this is tied to the political system, I mean, um, the coal, coal jobs are very much um, concentrated in two or three of the German states, and this mobilizes the head of the states um, very actively in the political negotiations. So there were a number of bottlenecks really that um, made it necessary to go this um, to go this way. But at the same time, you're right. I think it's definitely of help to have an infrastructure that can support or can help in in this transition, especially for workers and for new vocational training. Okay. Well, I know you're someone who's been following this transition closely. And in general, you've, you've referenced a little bit about where you see some challenges emerging around cost effectiveness, around moving from electricity sector decarbonization to these harder to abate sectors. Where else do you see the greatest challenges having emerged? And that could be within the country, or certainly there have been plenty of external forces 
uh, facing Europe these days that may have come into play as well. So where where has the country really been challenged to meet its goals? I think uh, in Germany, as in several other European countries, we are now at the point where climate action is really getting serious. So in the past, we did some decarbonization. I mean, we always had ambitious goals, but we never really had the instruments to follow through and being able to deliver these goals. And this is changing now. So they are coming, more sticks are coming in. Mm -hmm. um, and um, with this happening, I mean, uh, uh, one example to provide here is that there is a new law that will practically ban the use of oil and natural gas heating systems from next year on for new buildings or you are mandated to replace um, your old heating system if it's 30 years old. So that's quite some stick. And a lot of people are getting angry about it. Mm -hmm. And what is becoming apparent, I'm, I'm bringing this up as an example because it reveals that there is a substantial discrepancy between the stated support for climate action, which has always been very high in Germany, and the actual willingness to pay for it and to potentially also make sacrifices. Mm -hmm. And this is, I think, I mean, the question is, what kind of problem is this? Is it an economic problem? Is it a political problem? Or is it a broader societal problem that um, the bulk of the people have the expectations that you can do ambitious climate policy, but at relatively little cost? So it comes as a doodle, so to speak. And this was the um, communication strategy of many policymakers, if not all of them in the past. I mean, it's understandable because you need to motivate people to engage on such endeavors. But uh, then there's pay time at some point. Mm -hmm. And um, it confronts the communicative strategy or the narratives that were used in the past. And I think the country has to find a way to deal with this, to get out of this discrepancy and make people ready um, for the necessity to make some sacrifices and to pay a lot of money for really achieving this goal, which is, of course, very important to do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All right, the last question I'm going to ask you, because we're getting a little low on time, because I keep asking you questions, but I find myself, particularly when I talk to folks in other countries who have approached the transition um, on a different time frame with a different level of ambition than the United States, I think a lot about transferability of lessons from one jurisdiction to another. And um, so when you think about Germany's experience, which we've been talking through, which which lessons from what the country has achieved are in fact transferable to other places? And which factors, policies, considerations would you say might in fact be unique to Germany and not necessarily uh, something that another country could look to to learn from? Uh, I aim for a shorter answer now to make <laughs> up the time budget I overused. No, it's, it's um. me. I'm the one yapping away. Yep. So I think what is... Um, what is a very important le lesson from German climate policy is the fact that we have provided a proof of concept that uh, an energy system with a high share of renewable energy works. Mm -hmm. I think we had a lot of uh, um, advantages, um, conditions, and we were in a situation, we have a very good grid, for instance, which makes things easier for us. Mm -hmm. um, but still, we were ready, we engaged in this endeavor, and we managed it. So there are no major outages, no major cost explosions whatsoever. So it's really going smooth. Mm -hmm much more smoothly than expected. Even with the phase out of nuclear and coal, two types of baseload power? Well, we will see that. Okay. Um, but <laughs> okay. um, there were still just um, three nuclear power plants remaining, so they had only at this point a relatively marginal effect on the whole system stability and operation. We will see how it will turn out with coal because slashing out one technology after the other, of course, becomes more challenging and also gas uh, is uh, originally, was originally conceived as a bridging technology, but it's now much more 
well, controversial also with a view on the Ukraine crisis. Mm -hmm. So we will see how things go. And it's, I mean, it's, it's definitely necessary to increase the pace with which renewables are deployed and scaled up. But I think it has worked well. And as I said, no major problems with regard to security or cost explosions or so, anything like that. And um, uh, given that on what preconditions or initial situations Germany is working here, I mean, we are applying Teutonic rigor to this uh, energy vendor. We are having a lot of engineering talent. So if it would not have worked out in Germany, I think this would have sent a very bad signal to the rest of the world in terms of is this actually feasible? Mm -hmm. And then um, also what we did in terms of supporting solar power um, in the first year, so up until uh, 2010 uh, by a large, I think that was a really substantial benefit for the rest of the world to having sustained um, the development of, the mm -hmm. of this technology at this point and created a lot of spillovers, especially with innovation. Yeah, so the one thing where I would say it's, uh, that is not transferable is that um, um, a lot of the things that we are doing, we can only do because we have such a substantial political support and a lot of money that allows us to take measures that are probably not feasible or that are very likely not feasible in the rest of the world. And I was mentioning the coal phase out and why I think in general it's a good idea to pay structural aid to compensate, to help workers transition. Um, if this would be a blueprint for the rest of the world, then climate policy would be extremely costly. And then again, we are at this point where we do have to make clear and find a new way to establish that some sacrifices are needed. And if you look at historical incidents of transformations, like say the industrial revolution that always came at, at, uh, at sacrifices in the short term, mm -hmm. but turned out much, uh, much better in the long term. So there are some I think it's hard to avoid that there are losers and for the time being Germany is ignoring this and so I think this is really a part of the uh, idiosyncratic way that Germany is handling things especially in the phase outs and I think this cannot serve as a blueprint or as a lesson for the rest of the world. Maybe it can serve as a lesson how not to do it but I would not go that far. Yeah well all of those lessons are relevant and I you know I'm I certainly do appreciate how much Germany has been a leader in some of the technology development uh, that it has, in fact, you know, benefited other countries as well. So, well, we are at the end of our time. And so I will close our recording by thanking you, first of all, for taking the time to talk with me. And then also, I wanted to invite you to share other good content that you might want to recommend to our listeners. We refer to this segment as top of the stack. So, Michael, what's on the top of your stack? So my recommendation is not a piece of economic work. Um, it's it's a piece, it's an essay um, written by a writer, actually. And it's called The Tragedy of Stopping Climate Change. It's an essay by Jesse Stevens, which was published in Foreign Affairs in 2021. And um, yeah, as I mentioned, Jesse is a novelist and a writer. And um, in this essay, she reflects on the role her profession could play in telling the climate story. So uh, what writers should do and actually what kind of stories there are to tell. And uh, what I really like about this essay, it's quite open-ended. So it raises more questions than it answers. And I found this extremely inspiring. I've come back to this piece several times since it was published in 2021. And for everyone who thinks on a very high level, on a very general level, how we, how we live through this to this problem um, and how we um, think it should be communicated and what, which questions we ask ourselves, I definitely recommend to read this piece. Great. All right. Well, we will put a link to that with the transcript of our episode so that our readers can take a look. And thank you again. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much. You've been listening to Resources Radio, a podcast from Resources for the Future. 
If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. This podcast is made possible with the generous financial support of our listeners. You can help us continue producing these kinds of discussions on the topics that you care about by making a donation to Resources for the Future online at rff.org donate. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson with music by Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.